This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, we make a stop at the Idaho Potato Museum in Blackfoot, and we'll take a deeper look at the heroic efforts of beekeepers and researchers trying to save the world's bee colonies. We'll have a report on what farmers are doing in Idaho to increase farm safety, and of course, Paul Marchant will check in later with Irons in the Fire. I'm Neil Larson, and our news is just ahead. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com. USDA is out with its new forecast for farm income. Gary Crawford has more in this report with the USDA. Two big stories contained in the USDA's new farm income forecast this week. First, it looks like last year's farm income ended up being a lot higher than had been projected. Early this year, USDA was looking for 2021 net farm income to fall below 2020. Instead, it soared to $140.4 billion, almost 50% higher than 2020. The second story is the forecast for this year. Net farm income for calendar year 2022 is forecast 5.2% higher than in 2021. Spiro Stefano runs the USDA's Economic Research Service. He says net farm income will come in at $147.7 billion, which is a good $7 billion higher than last year. This even though farmers this year are seeing... Production expenses up 18%, direct government payments falling... Falling by almost 50%. But still, we can see a, a positive income. Thanks to record high farm cash receipts up 21% from last year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And now the American Farm Bureau perspective on the latest income projections. Here's Michael Clements. USDA's Economic Research Service released its September 2022 Farm Income Forecast Thursday. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Bernd Nelson says USDA revised farm income to be higher. Today's report adjusted the forecast for 2022 net farm income up by $7.3 billion, or 5.2% from 2021. This follows an increase of $45.9 billion in 2021 from 2020. ERS also adjusted the February 4th net farm income projection for 2021, increasing the forecast in the September report by $21.3 billion, or nearly 30%. While enjoying increased farm income, expenses are higher as well. February report showed a 17% increase from 2021 to 2022 in total farm expenses. The September forecast increased total expenses 437.3 billion. The greatest increases in expenses came first from fertilizer up 41%, and second place was pesticides up 25% from last year. In third place, we have fuel costs increasing by 22% since 2021. Nelson adds there's been a lot of changes globally since the February report. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine was really a wake-up call when we talk about a secure food supply. Disruptions caused by the invasion caused a spike in crop prices, and then they came way back down again. This is a result of our farmers. They really stepped up to the plate, and production was good. This has caused some of our supply concerns to be mellowed out a little bit. Michael Clements, Washington. What are some of the details behind the latest round of awards for a USDA grant program designed to boost specialty crop marketing and research efforts? Rod Bain has this report featuring Undersecretary for Marketing 
and regulatory programs, Jenny Moffitt. Marketing, education, research, competitiveness, the intent of the Agriculture Department's specialty crop block grants. Specialty crops are things like fruits, vegetables, tree nuts, medicinal plants and nursery, floriculture and horticulture crops. This program was established in the Farm Bill back in 2004. And since 2006, USDA has invested more than $950 million through this program to fund over 11,000 projects nationwide. And Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs Jenny Moffitt says for this latest round of specialty crop block grant awards recently announced, the numbers come in at 72.9 million in funding this year. So that is funding for over 600 projects across states, territories, and the District of Columbia. More details about USDA specialty crop block grant program can be found online at www.ams.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. One expert is saying don't take USDA's new trade forecast for the upcoming fiscal year too seriously. There are too many unknowns. Here's Gary Crawford to explain. The latest USDA trade forecast has ag exports in fiscal year 2023 falling below this year by $2.5 billion, imports up by $5 billion, trade deficit $3.4 billion. However, one expert says don't set those numbers in stone. After all, we're looking a long way out into the future. USDA's chief economist Seth Meyer says the 23 year doesn't even start until October plus a solid forecast almost impossible now because of a huge amount of uncertainty. We've got continued war in the Ukraine. We've got tight agricultural markets. We've got maybe undertrend crops in a few places in the world. I think we've got concerns but not certainty about an economic contraction. Certainly some of the folks who forecast GDP have been ratcheting down their global GDP growth. That could impact demand. Could, might, might not. So Meyer says take this fiscal year 23 forecast with a grain of salt. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Well, Idaho's farmers markets had a tough go early in the COVID pandemic, but they appear to have bounced back nicely since then. And some are reporting record sales, traffic, and vendor numbers. According to a piece by Sean Ellis with the Idaho Farm Bureau, Tamara Cameron said that they've bounced back. She's the executive director of the Boise Farmers Market. She said they're back to their pre-pandemic figures as far as sales go and that it's been a good year. There are 50 farmers markets located throughout the state. One silver lining of the COVID pandemic is that it really emphasized the importance of farmers markets. According to Don Larkzeiler, an Idaho preferred marketing specialist for the Idaho State Department of Agriculture, who also serves on the IFMA board, uh, she said that during the pandemic, they were trying to go straight to the source, getting to meet farmers and their families. That was something that that they didn't see go away, that it's a blessing in disguise because people want to know where their food comes from. And one thing the pandemic did do was force farmers markets to adapt and to innovate. And in some cases, that innovation turned out to be permanent, like in the case of the Boise farmers market. The COVID restrictions resulted in the market creating a drive through option that allowed people to order online straight from a vendor and then have their items ready in bags to be picked up as they drove through. Now, you can Read the rest of this interesting piece with the Idaho Farm Bureau and the farmers markets simply by going to idahofb.org. Well, a beginning farmer must take time to learn the rules and ordinances in their municipality, county, or state that allow them to farm and conduct certain ag practices. 
Rod Bain speaks with Kelly McAdam of the University of New Hampshire Extension System. What are perhaps some main things beginning farmers need to know before they go into operation that go beyond agriculture? University of New Hampshire Extension expert Kelly McAdam says they need to know what legal rules and ordinances allow them to farm in the first place. Where do you start at a place where you're not going to get into trouble? Do you have that permission? Do you have that zoning for what you want to do? That means checking with the county or municipality if the property is properly zoned for agriculture, or at least permission is given for non-farm activities like agritourism. Checking with the town or the municipality, sure you know how the property is titled or what the title says and if there's any easements on the property. So checking with your registry of deeds, checking with your county or your city or municipality or town. Also important to know, what is the definition of a farmer in the eyes of a local municipality, county, or state? I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Idaho Farm Bureau takes us to the Idaho Potato Museum in Blackfoot now, where Executive Director Tish Dahman explains what makes the museum a worthy place to visit. What is the, uh, what it, tell us what is this and who owns it? That's two questions. Okay, well I can answer two questions. Um, so the Idaho Potato Museum was established in 1988 by a group of volunteers and that um, became a nonprofit a private museum entity and so there's a board of directors but the building was donated to the city of Blackfoot and they rent it to us for a dollar a year. So Blackfoot is the potato capital of the world, correct? Yep. Because we grow more potatoes than any other county in the United States. Um, and I think the volunteers who tried to, uh, who, who established this um, wonderful idea of a potato museum, they wanted to back that claim up with a museum. So as you, as you come into the museum, you're going to find out why Idaho is a great place to raise potatoes or grow potatoes and why we're the potato capital of the world. Economically, why is it located? Right, and the next thing you're going to learn out where the potatoes come from, and you're going to find out that they come from Chile. You're going to find out how they got to Europe and how they got to um, North America. You're going to learn about growing potatoes today, what it takes, what it used to take to grow potatoes in the past, what back-breaking work that is. And then as you move into the ag room, you learn about um, some of the great inventions that happened right here in Blackfoot um, that really revolutionized the potato industry, like the Milestone Potato Seed Cutter and Spudnik's um, uh, Piler. Okay. And then there's the cafe at the yeah. end. Absolutely. Like that. That's sort of like the cherry on the top, right? That is the cafe, so they can okay. actually eat an Idaho baked potato. Does everyone here that come here, do they all know that Idaho is the potato state, or yes. I'm guessing? Well, and, and I think that originates with the Idaho Potato Commission. You know, they started operating in 1947, and they did a massive, oh, well, a, just a great job spreading the world that Idaho potatoes were the best potatoes, and there's a reason for it. It's our soil, it's our climate, it's um, our aquifer, the amount of um, water that we can just Put down on those spuds and it's just exactly right in the nutrients from the aquifer and from the soil so we grow amazing potatoes it's just what we do 
By the way, you can see the video version of this report at idahofb.org. When we return, the efforts of beekeepers and researchers to stop the collapse of bee colonies around the world. Plus, the American Farm Bureau Foundation releases a new kids' book about the remarkable life of Norman Borlaug on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Are you being audited or investigated? Has the IRS sent you a letter demanding payment? You may not owe what they claim. Make this free call to the tax doctor now. Let them negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-708-7934. 800-708-7934. That's 800-708-7934. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. The nation's beekeepers are continuing to lose colonies at an alarming rate, and scientists are working with beekeepers to stem the tide of those losses. Gary Crawford has the latest on this edition of Agriculture USA. When it comes to the art and science of beekeeping, the main rule is this one. You gotta take care of the hives. Just take care of the hives. But starting back in 2006 or so, it was clear something was going seriously wrong with the nation's honeybee colonies. The sudden inexplicable disappearance of millions of honeybees. Collapsing colonies and staggering bee losses. Currently, I have 1,900 hives of bees left of the original 4,300. In the 15 years or so since the losses became a focus of attention and concern nationally, U.S. scientists and beekeepers have been doing a lot of research, a lot of work on the problem. The losses have continued, though with beekeepers still reporting losses sometimes up to about 50% in some years, especially over the wintertime. What's the latest on the situation? We'll take a look on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com. Here's a little rap-style song about the disappearance of honeybees from the point of view of the bees talking to us. What up, baby, baby, what up, what's good? The honeybees are here straight from the hood. But you know what would happen if we just up and went? You'd be fooled by the facts if you knew just what it meant. Yo, no more sweets, ice cream, and no more honey. No more veggies and fruit, nah, that just ain't funny. Definitely not funny. About a third of the food we eat comes from crops that have to be pollinated by bees or other pollinators. 
Now, there is a bit of good news on the beef front. The growth in the number of colonies lost each year seems to have leveled off. The U.S. Department of Agriculture reports that during the first three months of this year, the winter quarter, the nation's beekeepers lost about 12 percent of their colonies and another 10 percent during the April through June quarter. Those are somewhat lower losses than the same time frame a year ago. That's great to say the number went down from last year, but this is still very concerning and still an emergency situation. That is Chris Hyatt. He's a beekeeper from North Dakota and president of the American Honey Producers Association and a very beezy man. We caught up with him. Where, where are you? I'm in my semis on the way to the first BR to pull honey for the day. Yeah, he had a lot of hives to work, 19,000 of them. He says beekeepers have had to go to great lengths to maintain the number of colonies to keep pace with the huge yearly losses they're having. It's a huge expense to replace those hives. I actually bought some hives. I got more packaged bees. I bought more queens to make more divides of my survivor hives. So just a huge expense. Chris told us that in the 1980s, the normal yearly loss a beekeeper could expect was about 10%. Now, it's running 30 to 40% nationally per year, forcing beekeepers to do more of the things that he talked about there to try to find better additional nutrition also for the bees. A lot of work, a lot of expense. And then we're still seeing these 30 to 40% losses. And he says now it's becoming the new normal, with beekeepers in what seems to be an unending battle to reduce losses and stay in business. It is definitely a battle. It's a continuous battle. Meanwhile, bee researchers, scientists such as Lainey Billadeau, research leader with the Agriculture Department's Bee Laboratory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, they are also soldiers in this battle. We talked with her at a big pollinator event in Washington, D.C. She told us researchers are working on this whole situation from every angle they can think of. We've got very big collaborative efforts to try to build these bees up and combat the various problems that they're facing. And that has been a big question all along. What is causing bee colonies to die off? One of the chief suspects is a tiny mite called the Varroa mite. It's a parasite of bees. It's listed by the beekeepers themselves as one major cause for bees becoming weaker and dying. But the mite has been around for decades and decades. Why are bees succumbing to it now? What else is going on? Researchers like Laney Billado now believe it's not just one issue or one problem. It's likely a combination of problems. We're trying to figure out what the problems are. So there's a lot of discovery work going on right now just to try to figure out what is happening. Beekeeper Chris Hyatt says there's a long list of possible problems that bees are facing. There's way less forage climate change with drought part of it and you know there is still pesticide issues but Lainey Billadeau says they are making progress on this she says she's confident these colony losses are going to come down I can't predict what that time scale is but I think they're going to come down we're trying and meanwhile beekeepers are doing what they need to do take take care of those hives You've been listening to Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. A new book from the American Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture teaches children about the life of Norman Borlaug. Michael Clement shares more on the publication geared toward mid-grade learners. 
Hero for the Hungry is the latest book from Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture's publishing venture, Feeding Minds Press. Author of the book, Peggy Thomas, says it shows readers how to use science to solve problems. It's a biography for mid-grade readers, fourth grade to eighth grade. And it's about Norman Borlaug. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for feeding millions of people with his wheat that he had worked for 20 some years breeding, but it could grow anywhere and it was short and it could give farmers a lot more grain on less land. Thomas hopes the book inspires readers to help the hungry. I hope it inspires them. The environment that Norman Borlaug discovered, that's still happening. I hope kids and adults kind of take that message and run with it, that they can do something too, because Norman was just an ordinary, curious kid growing up in Iowa. She says it's important that books offer an accurate perspective of agriculture. I really appreciate what Feeding Minds Press is doing because people still have a skewed vision of what farming is all about. And I think that's what Feeding Minds Press is doing. They're really setting the record straight, starting kids off with an accurate image of the importance of farming. The book is available for purchase Thursday, September 1st. Michael Clements, Washington. USDA recently announced grant applications. They're being accepted for its Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program in hopes of expanding biofuel infrastructure and availability of renewable fuels to consumers. Here's Rod Bain. At Illinois Convenience Store and Fuel Stop, site for a recent announcement from the Agriculture Secretary. We've got a relatively short application time period, 90 days. According to Secretary Tom Vilsack, regarding the application period for the Higher Blend Infrastructure Incentive Program, which ends on November 21st. USDA Rural Development, Rural Business Cooperative Service Administrator Karama Neal elaborates on the funding announcement. Secretary Vilsack has announced the availability of $100 million in grants under this program. This program will increase the sale and use of biofuels derived from U.S. agricultural products. So it's going to help lower out-of-pocket costs for businesses to install and upgrade biofuel-related infrastructure and equipment like pumps, dispensers, and storage tanks. HBIP, as it is known in acronym form, has already awarded $75 million in grant funding for such infrastructure addition and expansion projects. There will be some modifications for this go-around of HBIP funding applications. Previously, grants awarded under the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program required applicants to fund 75% of projects. Secretary Vilsack says now... We're now changing that to a 50-50 proposition, which we think will also be helpful. Another change in the program for this round of project applications, expanding the market and types of renewable fuel and its infrastructure eligible for HBIP. We also think there's an opportunity on rail and time as well, so we're including and expanding that. Just some of the many facilities eligible to apply for HBIP grants according to the Rural Business Cooperative Service Administrator. This includes things like gas stations, convenience stores, and larger retail stores that sell fuel. The funds also can be used to support fleet facilities and fuel distribution facilities, including home heating oil distribution centers. So a wide variety of facilities are eligible for this program. As for where to obtain more information on the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program and the current project funding application process, those interested in applying can find really everything they need at 
the Rural Development website. That's rd for ruraldevelopment.usda.gov slash H-B-I-I-P. Secretary Vilsack acknowledges it is going to take some time for the structure to be put in place. So there's going to continue to be a strong demand. For both renewable fuels by consumers and for the assistance provided through the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our next segment, USDA officials gear up for the massive census of agriculture and a new comprehensive farm safety manual is out, thanks in part to the efforts of Idaho farmers. The Farm Bureau has that report just ahead on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Are you being audited or investigated? Has the IRS sent you a letter demanding payment? You may not owe what they claim. Make this free call to the tax doctor now. Let them negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-708-7934. 800-708-7934. That's 800-708-7934. Welcome back. I'm Neil Larson. It's the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. The USDA is gearing up for a massive project, the Census of Agriculture. Gary Crawford has more. It's a little like a movie preview trailer. Coming soon. Five years in the making. A cast of millions. An enormous undertaking. And to say it's an enormous effort is, is probably an understatement. Uh, that's Barbara Rader. She's the director, not movie director, but more importantly, the director of the Census of Agriculture for the USDA's Statistics Service. And yes, as advertised, it is a five-year project. Five years of planning leading up to this massive data collection effort. An effort to first identify, locate, and contact every possible commercial farmer in the U.S. and Puerto Rico and to ask them to please fill out a census questionnaire about themselves and their farms. Now, a little history. Back in the 20s and 30s and to a certain extent on up into the 1980s, the government did most of its data collection by mail, but it also had to hire census takers to go door to door, farm to farm, and take census information in person. The Three Stooges even made a movie about it. We just got a job. We're working for the census. We get four cents a name for taking the census. Where are we going to get the census? Yeah, where are we going to get them? I'll take care of that. Okay, all right, back to uh, today's Ag Census. If you are a farmer, you most likely will start to hear more about this census in November when you'll get a letter from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Talking about the census and giving each person that receives a letter a code that allows them to go online and complete the census online. Online, and Barbara says that's the best way to do it. It's the most efficient, it's secure, 
It's convenient. Ah, but in December, just to make sure, USDA is going to mail out nearly 3 million actual paper questionnaires. And that's like 17 tractor trailers. Uh, So maybe that word enormous was an understatement. Barbara says the census will certainly yield an enormous amount of valuable data about U.S. agriculture if farmers help out by responding to the census. The more robust and the more information we have, um, the better decisions that are made that impact our farmers and producers. Because lawmakers use census data, for instance, to craft farm bills and other programs. And so, on to the census. To the census! Where are you going? To the census. Well, come on. Come on. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Well, farmers throughout Idaho consulted and put together a comprehensive handbook for farm safety. Learn how it came together, what it took to deliver. Here's the report from the Idaho Farm Bureau. Blake Matthews, and I'm from Oakley, Idaho. Uh, so I got involved with Tailgate Talks. Um, I, was, at the time, was serving as the chairman of the Board of Trustees for Leadership Idaho Agriculture, and uh, they were brought to us to see if we wanted to get involved with, with those um, and kind of help get them out to the general ag community and uh, we thought it was a great thing and so we we pursued that and and that's how I kind of became to be involved with with the tailgate talks. Well it was an interesting situation we always invite in uh, Rick Narabout the executive director of Idaho Dairymen's Association and he came in and made this presentation and in the presentation was this brand new program that they had rolled out called tailgate talks and it was the identified the 12 most popular things that OSHA looks at on dairy operations and so he made the presentation and there were several dairy folks in the audience and they said wow it's it's really worked well on our farm this is how we've used it this is how we've applied it and it was probably a a month later that we had a call from Rick Bruni and from Deborah Easterday Reeves and they said you know we think this needs to go broader than that it's not just about dairy we we live and work in an industry that is not always safe and while we love to brag about the commodities we raise where we place in the U.S. where we place in the world and what we do with the different commodities uh, we don't like some of the other statistics number of farm accidents suicides and so forth and so they said let's let's go to work and identify really critical concerns to to general agriculture and so they did i think our most valuable asset especially in the last few years has become our employees and we have to keep them safe and productive and we want them there for their lifetimes to work for us and stuff so that that starts that conversation but as I looked at it recently, I think when you bring grandkids onto the farm, you need to sit down with a kid on the book and, hey, this is the things you need to watch for around animals or, or don't play, mess around in canals and play around in them or even electrical issues and stuff. And the book sort of provides an introductory to all of those issues. The books can be ordered online at the www.leadershipidahoag.org and you can find an order form there. They can contact our office in Meridian. Um, That number is 208-888-0988. You can buy them in any quantity, and the larger the quantity is that you buy, the the more uh, reasonable the book becomes. By the way, you can see the video version of this report at idahofb.org. Well, what are some of the ways USDA's Emergency Rural Health Care Grant Program is assisting rural facilities nationwide? Rod Bain has the answer in this report. 
The latest round of USDA Emergency Rural Health Care Grants was recently announced. Providing the details, Rural Development, Rural Housing Service Administrator, Joaquin Altoro. We recently announced $74 million in grants to help 143 rural health care organizations expand critical services for 3 million people in 37 states, Guam, and Puerto Rico. The investments include $32 million for 67 projects to help more than 1 million people that are living in socially vulnerable communities. As for the purpose of emergency rural health care grants, our emergency rural health care program provides grant funding to help broaden access to COVID-19 testing, vaccines, even more importantly, as we continue to go through the journey of resilient health care in rural communities to address rural health care services and food assistance through food banks and food distribution facilities. But what might projects supported by one of these grants look like on the ground level? The administrator offers examples, both from the project list of the recent award announcement. USDA awarded a million dollar grant to Crisp Regional Hospital in Georgia to recover lost revenue caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. The recovery of lost funds will allow the hospital to continue with critical services in rural Georgia. In North Dakota, the Rowlett County Public Health District is using a $155,000 grant to build a storage unit to house the district's mobile health clinic. The mobile health clinic helps 14,000 Rowlett County residents access health care, nutritional assistance, and vaccines. The storage unit will protect the clinic from extreme weather conditions. As well as projects from prior Emergency Rural Health Care Grant Awards, such as at a New Jersey facility, which Administrator Altoro recently viewed firsthand. Cape Regional Medical Center received a $989,300 grant to purchase essential equipment to outfit COVID treatment bays with a negative pressure unit air handling system. The funds will also purchase dedicated radiology equipment, including CT scan, x-ray, and ultrasound to reduce waiting time for testing and diagnosing. This project will help patients of this center receive more efficient, personalized, and high-quality care. More details about USDA Emergency Rural Health Care grants can be found at this web address, www.rd.usda.gov ERHC. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, showing off some innovations and strategies to mitigate food loss. Plus, Paul Marchant will bring us another installment of Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Are you being audited or investigated? Has the IRS sent you a letter demanding payment? You may not owe what they claim. Make this free call to the tax doctor now. Let them negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-708-7934. 800-708-7934. That's 800-708-7934.
Welcome back for our final segment. USDA will soon showcase some of its innovative technologies and strategies designed to address food loss and waste at an upcoming virtual fair. Here's Rod Bain with more. One-third of all food that is produced goes uneaten. And there are also problems with uneaten food rotting in landfills and causing harmful methane, which is a climate change gas. At Agriculture Department Food Loss and Waste Liaison, Gene Busby says that is behind efforts to reduce food loss and waste in our nation by 50% by the year 2030. She believes to accomplish this, innovations will be essential in all areas of the supply chain. That is what has motivated the original first USDA Food Loss and Waste Innovation Fair last year was to highlight some of the successes from our research and also the breadth of what we do at USDA in terms of the different agencies' activities to reduce food loss and waste. The second virtual USDA Food Loss and Waste Innovation Fair is set to take place September 14th. And Busby says this year's event is a perfect showcase for some examples of innovative technologies and strategies under research and development, several funded by the Agriculture Department. There's a gelatin-based ice alternative that doesn't melt. And that means that when you store seafood and other fresh foods on ice and you ship it, it won't get soggy when the ice melts. And also what's really neat about this innovation is that it can be reused for over a dozen times and it is compostable, unlike uh, plastic ice packs and so forth. Another innovation involves reducing the decay of apples while they are in storage. We also have a microbe that converts sugar and bread into a compound popular in foods and beverages and supplements and other items. We will also highlight a new mobile food waste recovery trailer that aims to increase the amount of organic material diverted from landfills. The virtual fair itself also features exhibits on USDA and Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. Food Law and Waste 2030 Champions, as well as agriculture department agencies with examples of their own food loss and waste reduction efforts. This free event is open to the public. Busby says to register, just search the term 2022 USDA Food Loss and Waste Innovation Fair in your web browser to find the link to the registration page. When attendees come into the virtual platform, they'll see a virtual lobby and from there they can go into different exhibit halls and look more closely at individual virtual booths and they can live and text chat with virtual booth hosts. They can also view presentations in our virtual auditorium and there will also be a networking lounge where they can interact with presenters and other attendees. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally today, Paul Marchant weighs in with another installment of Irons in the Fire. I hope summer treated you well. I'm afraid it's on its way out as witnessed by the coming and going of most affairs and the beginning of school. I hope you're ready for fall and that summer was a wonderful one for you. You know, I really don't like to consider myself as part of an older generation of any sort. I'm afraid, though, the truth of the matter is I fit into that demographic in several different categories. Being labeled in the older generation certainly beats the alternative to growing older, but it's still not something I gladly concede. I used to recklessly throw the term around with impunity, but now when I refer to back in the day, I'm usually talking about something I remember. 
Since I run mostly in farm and ranch circles, that's generally the arena where I notice changing of the times the most. When I grew up, it seemed like nearly every farm in my home country had a few milk cows. Within three or four miles of my home, I can remember seven or eight outfits that milked between 30 and 100 milk cows. Back in the day, if you milked 100 cows, you had a pretty big dairy. These days, it seems that a 1,000 cow dairy barely makes it into the big category. Besides the obvious little annoying necessity of having to milk the cows twice a day, the other main constant in the dairy business, at least as I remember it, was putting up with a milk inspector. My dad and uncle were pretty particular about the prepping, milking, and cleanup routine on our little 30-cow dairy. As long as we stuck to the routine, they said we'd be safe from the wrath of the evil inspector. Now far be it from me or my cousins to be categorized as careless, but as can sometimes happen when serious matters are left in the hands of teenage boys, we occasionally got dinged by the inspector for some violation or other. Maybe the door from the parlor to the milk house was cracked open. Maybe there was a speck of manure on the wall. Maybe the water wasn't all drained from the vat where we cleaned the milkers. Maybe there was a crack in one of the rubber inflations. Whatever it was, the inspector could surely find it. Although I think George, the guy who was the usual inspector, was a pretty decent citizen, I lived in fear of having to talk to him if he ever showed up while I was on the premises. If I was out back feeding the calves or cleaning the manger when his brown car pulled up to the barn, I'd go to great lengths to avoid any interaction whatsoever. He may not have been the devil himself, but I was pretty sure that George and Satan were at least drinking buddies. As with many things in life, hindsight has changed my perspective and opinion of the milk inspector. George really was a pretty decent guy who was just doing his job. A good friend of mine who was a major player back in the Midwest in the dairy industry for decades recently shared some sage advice she got from her mother who hails from beyond back in the day. Her mother told her to always leave a cobweb or two in a corner or above the door for the milk inspector to find. The presence of a cobweb is a minor problem and an easy fix. Mother Brown's wise reasoning was that if the inspector would concentrate on the cobweb, he'd be less likely to expend much energy in search of larger problems, especially if you'd done your best and there weren't any major issues anyway. You know, we live in a world that is simultaneously shrinking and expanding. The ratio of us to them becomes less and less in our favor every year. As producers of the world's food and fiber supply, we can expect to be scrutinized and criticized more than ever before regardless of how responsible and efficient we may be or perceive ourselves to be. When it comes to marketing the fruits of our labors, what often matters most is not how we perceive who we are and what we do, or even the truth. What seems to matter is the way we are perceived by consumers, those who pay for our products. Unfortunately, perception becomes our reality. With that reality, it becomes the responsibility of us as farmers and ranchers to become the face and the voice of agriculture. It seems to me that it behooves us to run a pretty tight ship. It's also a reality that no matter how good we are, there will always be something someone can find fault with. And you know, I think that's probably okay. We can deal with the cobwebs in the corner. Let's just make sure there isn't a cow pie in the milk tank. That wraps up today's program. Don't forget you can catch this and previous programs on podcast by visiting IdahoFarmNet.com. I'm Neil Larson, and I'll catch up with you next week at this time on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.